Um, as the current chair of the Cyril Foster Committee, I'm very pleased indeed to welcome you to the 2014 Cyril Foster Lecture. And before inviting our Prose Vice-Chancellor to introduce our distinguished speaker, I just want to say a few words about the Cyril Foster Lecture and its origins. The Cyril Foster Lecture is the university's principal annual guest lecture in the field of international relations. It was established in 1958 when Oxford University accepted a bequest from the estate of a Mr. Cyril A. Foster. Mr. Foster's wishes in respect of the bequest were quite specific, yet also open to a range of interpretations. He requested that the university, and I quote, arrange for a prominent and sincere speaker to deliver once every year a lecture to be known as the Cyril Foster Lecture and that that lecture should deal with the elimination of war and the better understanding of the nations of the world. Over the years, the lecture has attracted a long and very distinguished group of speakers, including senior academics and policymakers from all around the world, all of whom have addressed these two core concerns from a variety of different perspectives including combating poverty, promoting economic development, preventing war, building peace and security, and strengthening international organizations. And I'm sure you'll all agree that our speaker tonight, who is an expert in the field of European integration, falls firmly into this plural tradition. And I'm very pleased uh, that the Pro Vice-Chancellor, Professor Francis Lannan, is here to introduce you to him. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a particular pleasure to welcome back to Oxford uh, Professor Lucas Sukalis. Uh, Professor Sukalis took his doctorate here and then held research and teaching posts at St. Anthony's College and before that at St. Catherine's College. And then he went off to other fields and a variety of other responsibilities. Uh, professor Tsoukalis is currently Professor of European Integration at the University of Athens, President of the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, a visiting professor at King's College London and the College of Europe in Bruges. He has published extensively and authoritatively on many aspects of really important questions concerning Europe, uh, the future of Europe, the present crises and difficulties of Europe also. And of his long list of publications, I really want to mention the most recent book that came out just a few months ago, and it is called The Unhappy State of the Union. Uh, Europe needs a new grand bargain. Uh, it's a sign of the distinction of our speaker this evening uh, that this book, which was originally released in English, has already been translated into several other European languages. Uh, we're so fortunate this evening to have Professor Tsoukalis with us to address uh, so appropriately something in which he is uh, an absolute expert and authority and it's a question that matters to all of us with some urgency. The topic is, has European integration reached the end of the road? Professor Tsukalis. Pro Vice-Chancellor, thank you very much for your kind words and introduction. It is, of course, a great honor to be invited to give the Cyril Foster Lecture for 2014. And I should like to thank the managers of the Cyril Foster Fund, Louise Fawcett in particular, as chair of the committee, for the invitation. The list of lecturers who have preceded me in this role is both long and very impressive. 
In my young and not so young days in Oxford, I attended several of these lectures and I learned a great deal. But it never crossed my mind that one day I might be asked to rise to the challenge. The legacy is indeed awesome. A Greek coming to Britain to talk about Europe. Is it any better than having Greeks bearing gifts? You may wonder. After all, Greece was the black sheep when the big crisis of recent years broke out, and she remains today the weakest link of the euro chain, while Britain appears to be the country least interested in European integration, judging from public opinion surveys. But of course, Oxford is special and never comfortable with stereotypes. Has European integration reached the end of the road? And if so, does it matter? Where do we go from here, if anywhere? This is the subject of my lecture this evening, and I propose to start with a brief history. We should not forget that Europe went through a remarkable transformation during the second half of the 20th century. Peace within and beyond national borders, the spreading and strengthening of democracy, ever-growing prosperity, and the closer unity of a still highly diverse continent were the main components of this transformation. From the dark continent, in the words of the historian Mark Mazower, Europe turned into a model or models that many people in other parts of the world wanted to imitate. A social model, a model of open borders and shared sovereignty, even a model of civilian power in world politics, although the latter has never been terribly convincing. European integration was part and parcel of this transformation. It established common institutions and rules, helped to reconcile old foes, created multiple networks of interdependence, provided an anchor and a strong reference point for new democracies, as well as a vehicle for modernization. Last but not least, it helped to create a large internal market a single market, if you prefer, still the biggest in the world. And for many years, growth was coupled with economic convergence between countries and the reduction of inequalities within countries. The European success story, as long as it lasted, was inclusive. And that was a key element in the creation of broad political consensus on which European integration rested for many years. It did not necessarily create Europeans out of proud citizens of nation states, but it did help to create a large majority of pro-Europeans who were happy with an integration project widely seen as delivering the goods. According to the jargon, it was output legitimacy that European institutions had to rely upon since loyalties remained mostly national and local. In the beginning, as we all know, European integration was about mainly peace and reconciliation. A French initiative to deal with the German problem in the aftermath of the Second World War, employing economic means to achieve political objectives, and with little popular enthusiasm to start with. An elitist conspiracy, you might call it, but with good intentions and pretty remarkable results, after all. Is there better proof of success for the European integration project over the long period than its continuous expansion in terms of membership and functions, from six to 28 members, and from coal and steel to just about everything? albeit with varying degrees and kinds of integration from one policy area to the other. There must surely be something in it and not just the product of a conspiracy of some Illuminati across borders. European integration, I believe, fits perfectly with the general terms of reference for the Cyril Foster lectures. It meant different things to different people. 
in what used to be perceived for a long time as a positive sum game. For the Germans, it was a major part of the rehabilitation process after the war. For the French, it was a way of extending their influence as long as the European interest continued to be defined more or less as the French interest. Italy's weak political system needed the European anchorage, and so did Belgium's increasingly virtual state. Belonging to the EU confers respectability and status to countries that had for long been treated as objects rather than subjects of European diplomacy. Membership has also helped to consolidate democracy in countries with a turbulent and unhappy political past and helped them to open up to the rest of the world. Most Greeks and Spaniards have learned that much from experience and so did the Poles and others in Central and Eastern Europe later on. People in those countries have also greatly appreciated the inflow of large amounts of funds for development purposes without always making the best use of them. It has been different all along with Britain, where the European story has been less convincing and local interest in listening seems to have faded further over the years. Slovaks and Finns, for example, have nowhere else to go and they know it. While there are many British, perhaps mistakenly, who think they do and they continue to think in terms of us and them. At the individual level, the typical supporter of European integration is educated and well-off. He or she belongs to the political mainstream, is middle-aged or older and willing to move. These are the people who have provided the core of support. As for the young, they've never been attracted by Europe's bureaucratic face, although the post-national narrative goes down more easily with them. They also tend to take the achievements of integration for granted, simply because they've never known anything else. With time, it got more complicated. The European project became much bigger, more intrusive, and less inclusive internally, while external competition intensified in a rapidly globalizing world. Not surprisingly, it also became less consensual, but the process of widening and deepening of integration did not slow down. The new century found Europe preparing for a next big transformation, and it was meant to be much bigger than anything before, including a European constitution, a big bank enlargement, the creation of a common currency, not to mention a common foreign policy. Political will was meant to massively transform the political and economic order on the European continent. Yet, when it came to the test, the will was found wanting and the preparations poor. We also discovered awkward trade-offs in the process that we were not really ready to handle. Let me go through some of the lessons we learned in the first decade of the 21st century. Difficult lessons had to be learned the hard way, and for many of Europe's political leaders, they took a long time to sink in. On the way from the ill-fated European Constitution to the Lisbon Treaty, we learned that the benign conspiracy of the original founders was simply not repeatable, with much bigger numbers, a very different political context, and much higher stakes. A big gap was also revealed between national politicians and citizens on things European the permissive consensus on European integration could no longer be taken for granted. Successive enlargements have been indeed the most successful foreign policy of the Union, but inevitably diversity multiplies with enlargement. Numbers also make a very big difference. 
councils of 28 look like mini UN conferences, and big countries in particular are more tempted to look for agreements in, for, through informal channels. With 28, it is a very different European Union. We have also learned that the so-called process of Europeanis Europeanization, on which so many books and articles have been written, has its limits, and they are often uncomfortably narrow. The Union surely makes a difference for its new members, but it is not and cannot be the modern incarnation of St. Panteleimon or St. Pantaleon in the Western vernacular, the all-merciful healer of all kinds of disease and institutional failure, I would add. Then what about the common European foreign and security policy? Well, what about it? It is the peaceful revolution that never happened. In a world in which the tectonic plates of geopolitics are moving fast and the center of gravity is shifting from the west to the east, size continues to matter a great deal in international relations. And individual European countries, including the big ones, no longer count for very much. The post of European High Representative was given new powers and resources by the Lisbon Treaty, but has not changed things all that much, with few notable exceptions. Perhaps it was never meant to. Europe remains weak, often divided, and increasingly irrelevant in international affairs. However, the hardest and most expensive lesson of all we had to learn was in relation to the new common currency, which remains to this day the most daring act of integration since the very beginning. The creation of the euro was strong in symbolism and with broad political ramifications. Geopolitics, once again, provided the driving force. It was the unification of Germany behind it all. Political will, again, was meant to turn an economically heterogeneous group of national economies, those willing and able, into a workable currency area, although not the optimum currency area, much talked about in the economics literature. I, many years back, I wrote my DPhil thesis here in Oxford on European monetary integration. I tried then to explain why earlier attempts had delivered so little, but also why monetary union would continue to figure prominently on the European agenda in the years to come. Unfortunately, when monetary union did happen, it repeated many of the mistakes of those earlier attempts at European monetary integration. The Maastricht construction for economic and monetary union was politically weak and structurally unbalanced. European leaders decided to create a new common currency, but they were clearly not ready to provide it with the necessary instruments and institutions to make it viable in the long run. So they were unprepared, but they were also unlucky. The first real test for the euro after a 10-year-long honeymoon period came with the biggest international financial crisis since 1929 itself the result of colossal failures of markets and institutions that were certainly not confined to Europe. To their shock and horror, the international financial crisis soon transformed itself into a systemic crisis of the Euro area, revealing not only the weakness of the original construction, but also the incompatibility of policies pursued by different members. The design was wrong, but so was membership. The crisis revealed all kinds of problematic children in the Euro family, countries with increasingly unsustainable economic and social models in a rapidly globalizing economy, some with dysfunctional political systems, 
which had lived for years on borrowed time and borrowed money. Perhaps just a bit more than others, you might think, considering the amount of debt all around. I'm afraid the best known example is my own country, Greece. Money was cheap and easy in the years of plenty that had preceded the crisis. And much of it, not all, was provided by German banks recycling the large current account surpluses accumulated in their home country. Meanwhile, Germany set a standard in terms of wage and price increases inside the euro area that would have been extremely difficult, even with the best of intentions, for other countries to follow. Some countries did not even try, and they had a party. The result is the worst crisis we've been living through in the last five years, at least six, since the beginning of European integration in the 1950s. And the euro area is at the center of it. All kinds of unthinkables have happened to save the euro. The list is indeed long and impressive, ranging from national bailouts that dare not speak their name because they were not supposed to happen. Large packages of financial assistance that have set new records in international financial history. Extremely painful adjustment programs for the countries in trouble with the direct involvement of the IMF. New stringent forms of fiscal economic policy coordination for all Euro members that have taken Europe's joint management of interdependence into completely new territory. Meanwhile, the European Central Bank, the federal institution par excellence, has been forced to stretch continuously the limits of the legal constraints imposed on it by Maastricht, trying to act as the savior of last resort of the euro. And that is not all. We now have a banking union, we have agreed on a banking union, and now it's being implemented, although the mutualization of risk will take longer. The banking union is the next most important step after the creation of the common currency. All in all, the crisis has already forced Euro members into a much more advanced stage of policy integration. But this, if you are in favor of integration, you may consider that as good news, but there's a long list of bad news as well. The bad news is that the price we've paid so far in terms, in economic, political and social terms, is extremely high. I'll give you a few examples. Real GDP of 2007 in the euro area as a whole will not be recovered before the end of 2015 at the earliest. A lost decade, in other words. It has been only marginally better for the EU28 as a whole. Unemployment is high, and in parts of Southern Europe, it has reached levels that would have been unimaginable during peacetime. Youth unemployment has gone up to stratospheric levels, and it is in parts of Europe, and it is unlikely to come down fast, thus raising the specter of a lost generation as well, not only a lost decade. Thus, in a crisis that was, remember, US-born, Comparison with the United States in terms of macroeconomic performance is very unfavorable for the euro area. More recently, the same is true when the comparison is made with the United Kingdom. In fact, the catalogue of ills is much longer. Economic divergence has grown a great deal between and within countries. On one end of the spectrum, the Greeks have lost one quarter of their GDP during the crisis. Other countries on the periphery, on the European periphery, less. While on the other end of the spectrum, for most Germans, the crisis is still something terrible that happens to others. Europe has been divided and the divisions run deep. 
and Euroscepticism has been rising. In last May's European Parliament elections, anti-European parties registered a large increase in their share of vote, in some countries more than in others. But still, they represent only 25% of members of the European Parliament. Meanwhile, support for European integration all around has sunk to an all-time low. The politics of managing the Euro crisis has been very much about who pays the bill. Although most people directly concerned have always pretended otherwise. Economics has also got mixed up with morality. Remember that in German and other European languages as well, debt and guilt are the same word. But are borrowers the only ones to blame when a bubble bursts? During this long crisis, trust has been low, the economics flawed, and the politics toxic. Not surprisingly, national stereotypes have returned with a vengeance. The crisis has also shifted the balance of power inside the Euro area and the Union as a whole. Germany has emerged out of this crisis as the indispensable country and the lender of last resort, and Chancellor Merkel as the undisputable leader of Europe in crisis. Thus, much of the politics of managing the crisis has been played out in Berlin, often more so than in Brussels. Of course, it was never meant to be like this. President Mitterrand, I remind you, had insisted on monetary union precisely in order to prevent a strong reunited Germany from dominating the European scene. It was the old logic of Robert Schuman once again, a French initiative to deal with now a new German problem, employing again economic means to achieve political objectives. And Chancellor Kohl at the time agreed as his predecessors had done before him. Yet, if people had read the earlier history of European monetary integration more carefully, they might have thought differently at the time. I believe that the experience accumulated over several decades suggests that Germany enjoys a big structural advantage within a European system of fixed exchange rates. Its economic size and prowess, combined with a decades-long stability-minded policy and export-led growth, a corporatist tradition and largely consensual politics, have ensured its position as leader. As long as European Monetary Union operates as a modern version of the gold standard, with the European Central Bank making the difference, but not enough, and with Germany setting the policy priorities, several countries will continue to find it very difficult to cope, having relinquished the right to devalue and the right to monetize their public debt. The economic strategy to deal with the crisis has centered on austerity and reform. It has been dictated by creditor countries as a precondition for the provision of financial assistance to debtors. But the trouble is that when fiscal contraction happens simultaneously in several countries, while the private sector is also trying to deleverage after the bursting of a big bubble, you are likely to end up with a vicious circle of austerity and recession. And if that happens, private and public debt becomes increasingly unsustainable. This is precisely what happened, although in different degrees from country to country. Meanwhile, the loosening of monetary policy has always been late and not enough. A word perhaps also about structural reform, which is the other pillar, pillar of the economic strategy. Structural reform takes time to deliver, 
while the political costs are immediate. But structural reform is also like a big basket with many different things in it, catering for different tastes. Some reforms, notably in the labor market, imply difficult trade-offs and have broad distributional consequences. For example, as a result of the labor reforms introduced by Chancellor Schroeder in Germany, the country has become more competitive, but also internally more unequal. The trade-off between competitiveness and social cohesion is not an easy one to handle politically. Liberalization on its own is not always the answer to everything. At least, let us not pretend that all reform is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. It is also politically much more difficult when at the same time you put your foot on the fiscal brakes. Let us then try to answer the question, who paid the bill? The burden of adjustment after the crisis struck has fallen mostly, almost entirely, on the deficit countries, with the weaker and more vulnerable members of society being most affected. Perhaps rightly so, some people may think, since those countries had tried to live beyond their means for long, and they would have a point. But now those countries have been punished very hard. They also had to borrow large sums of money and the debt accumulated will hang over the younger generations for years to come. On the other hand, taxpayers in the surplus countries have undertaken significant credit risks by lending to partner countries in trouble, and they are not at all sure they will get all their money back. In between stand private creditors, banks in particular. With some exceptions, they have been protected with money and guarantees from national taxpayers and European institutions. It may therefore not be so surprising that many people are manifestly unhappy about the way pain has been distributed within countries and which hardly corresponds to the way gain had been distributed before the crisis struck. I think with the benefit of hindsight, we need to recognize that the euro was a terrible mistake, at least the way it was done. When the crisis struck, Europe's political leaders showed a strong instinct of survival, but also little sense of strategic vision. The state we are in today in the euro area reminds me of the old joke about the man who gets lost in the Irish countryside and asks a local for the way to Tipperary. And the local answers back, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. And this is precisely how it feels in the euro area today. The options are limited and none is easy. Proponents of the existing economic strategy have pinned their hopes on growth that will bring our economies out of a long recession. Instead, after a lost decade already, the euro area is now courting with deflation and growth remains very slow and uneven at best. The large numbers of unemployed are not expected to find jobs anytime soon. Public debt is now much higher as a percentage of GDP than it was in the beginning of the crisis. Private debt also remains very high, and many banks are still trying to deleverage. No surprise again that there is a great deal of public discontent, especially in the worst affected countries. Much of it is channeled through anti-systemic parties. Syriza in Greece, Podemos in Spain, and Sinn Féin in the Republic of Ireland. They are all leading in public opinion polls in their respective countries. On Europe's periphery, protest takes mostly a left-wing form, 
with a populist background, for sure. Cinque Stelle in Italy is arguably a category on its own. Anti-systemic parties have been gaining strength, as we all know, in other European countries as well. The center is being squeezed and the extremes grow bigger everywhere. In France and the UK, respectively in and out of the Euro area, most of this anti-systemic vote seems to be driven mainly by popular concerns about immigration and the loss of sovereignty. Hence, it is more nationalist and right-wing. I believe that the crisis extends much beyond the Euro area and also goes much deeper. There's growing disconnect between economics and politics. While economic reality has become increasingly global or European, politics has remained stubbornly national or local. How do we reconcile the two realities and at what cost? Europe has for a long time tried to produce an innovative answer to this question through the joint management of interdependence and shared sovereignty. And it is far ahead of any other region in the world in this respect. However, judging from popular reactions today, the European answer leaves much to be desired. Again, the EU also provides an easy scapegoat for populist attacks. It is run by foreigners after all, isn't it? Alas, it is, this is a trick also employed by mainstream politicians in our countries who should have known better. European integration has indeed reached the nooks and crannies of our societies. In several instances, it has clearly gone too far with little regard to the so-called principle of subsidiarity. There is arguably too much bureaucratic meddling from Brussels, although critics often conveniently ignore the need for market regulation and all that it implies. Europe has also become a lucrative profession, perhaps for too many, and there is considerable waste as well. People feel increasingly cut off from decisions that directly affect their everyday lives. Decisions taken by institutions they do not identify with or feel able to influence in any way. To put it in a nutshell, it is European policies without European politics. And we may have gone too far in this direction. But there's also a growing disconnect between political elites and citizens in many of our societies. In times when the private increasingly trumps the public. Trust in national institutions as well as national politicians has reached an all-time low in several European countries. Big political failures of recent years, of course, have contributed. Be they the bursting of the big bubble, as a result of an ideologically loaded and basically naive approach as to how financial markets are supposed to function, or the way many of our governments have managed or mismanaged the crisis after that. Prolonged economic stagnation and high unemployment do not help, nor does large-scale corruption in several countries. The political system, in other words, is no longer seen by many people as delivering the goods, at least not enough. To what extent this is due to policy failure or to tight constraints imposed on political power by a borderless economy that sets the pace and often dictates the rules is, however, a moot point. There is a difference I believe, between democratically regulated markets and market-driven democracies. We may have veered too much towards the latter as a result of free capital movements and the liberalization of financial markets. Many young people in our countries are angry 
They have inherited a heavy debt burden from their parents' generation, while their job prospects are poor in many parts of Europe. No surprise again. Many prefer to vote with their feet, while others begin to throw stones. There is, however, a bigger category of losers in this long economic transformation we have been going through during the last two or three decades linked to technological innovation and globalization. Inequalities have been growing within our societies. Domestic social contracts have come under challenge. In those countries worst hit by the crisis, they are being literally torn apart. The point I want to stress here is that these underlying trends predate the crisis, but they have become much stronger because of it. They are directly related to developments above or below the European level. Thus, to a certain extent, the effects on European integration look like an epiphenomenon. And if this is Greek to you, perhaps you can call it collateral damage, which is not exactly the same. But again, only up to a point. European integration is now perceived by many people in our societies as being part of the problem and not part of the solution. Those who identify themselves as losers turn anti-establishment. In their eyes, the EU is part and parcel of the establishment they've come to resent. The circumstances, suppose that my analysis is correct, you may then wonder how is it that the European project has survived for so long? In the words of Luke van Middelaar in his book Passage to Europe, it is because of what he calls the unique political glue created after many years of cooperation, close cooperation and interdependence. I'm sure he has a point, but I suspect that fear has been a much more important factor. I mean fear of the alternative. Let me explain. The majority of Europeans, including those in the beleaguered South, still believe that the breakup of the Euro would entail much bigger losses than the ones they've already suffered or are still suffering. If the Euro was indeed a big mistake, most people, including myself, believe that trying to undo it today would be an even bigger one. Fear of the alternative or just fear of the unknown can be the glue for many things not just for the euro, but it may not work forever. We are therefore in a bind in Europe today. The survival of the euro requires more policy integration, but we are told there is no appetite for it among our fellow citizens. Political leaders are not keen on embarking on yet another ambitious integration initiative, and there is also wide divergence of interests and perceptions that would be difficult to bridge. To complicate matters further, the UK is now asking for repatriation of powers, for more differentiation and more flexibility. Otherwise, the UK threatens to leave. The external environment is hardly more favorable. The transition from a unipolar to a multipolar world is proving to be much less smooth than we had hoped or wished. The risk of a new Cold War with Russia is on the cards, and I believe we are far from being entirely blameless for what is happening, while our immediate neighborhood has turned much more unstable and hence a source of serious tension and problems. Brussels, Europe remains painfully short of strategic thinking, and the rest of the world becomes more aware of our collective limitations and acts accordingly. Is it really the end of the road? Let me come back to the 
regional question I asked in the beginning of the lecture. Some people already talk about this integration, and they are not all among the usual suspects. For example, Jan Zilonga, professor here at the university, thinks that the EU is doomed. At best, it may survive in modest form, he argues. But he does not seem to be much concerned about this prospect because he envisions a Europe of numerous complex networks and circles, a neo-medieval Europe, as he calls it. The problem I have with this concept is that today's world is anything but neo-medieval. Global power politics played by continental powers and global markets that bear little resemblance to those perfect competition models taught in our economics textbooks. In today's world, you need institutions and organized political power to be able to deal with this kind of reality. Let me now come to the last part of my lecture. In an essay I wrote that the Pro-Vice-Chancellor had the kindness to refer to, an essay I wrote a few months ago, I tried to sketch out a new European grand bargain that could help to break the existing deadlock and turn European integration once again into a positive sum game. I shall spare you here the details. I would like, however, to present briefly its main working hypothesis. Number one, when I hear there is no appetite for further integration, my immediate response is that my appetite always depends on what is on the menu, unless I'm starving. The choice between more or less Europe is often terribly misleading. The more relevant question should be about what kind of Europe. But I recognize that we have not yet developed the right political mechanisms to give answers to such a question. The European project is caught in the midst of a much bigger crisis. There are legitimate causes for public discontent and I believe that instead of trying to lump together all kinds of protest as populist, as just dismiss them, we should perhaps begin to try and deal with the causes directly. But let us also not pretend that the problem lies only with Europe or that purely national solutions can be effective. Number two. Given the heterogeneous nature of EU28, and perhaps even more members tomorrow, there is simply no one-size-fits-all model of integration. We shall therefore need more differentiation and flexibility to cater for different needs and tastes, even controlled closure when necessary. You may call it multiple speeds, multi-tier, variable geometry, or anything else you like. As a legal instrument, the so-called Fiscal Compact Treaty that came into force in 2013 could serve in the future as a useful precedent. This means no vetoes, while each country decides whether it joins or not a new initiative or a new treaty, but having not the right to stop others from doing so. This should not, however, imply that Europe is just like a restaurant where each customer chooses from a long list a la carte. I strongly believe that we should do everything possible to keep the UK under the common European Union roof, even if it is mutually agreed that the UK stays out of some of the common activities. I believe it is important for Europe and it is important for the UK. Having lived many years in this country, and I've always had great respect and admiration for it, I shall venture an opinion on a sensitive domestic issue. The way things have gone, I think that the holding of a referendum on UK membership may indeed be desirable, irrespective of who wins the next election. Otherwise, the issue of membership will continue poisoning domestic policies in the UK, 
while also tying Britain's hands in relation to its European partners. A referendum on EU membership I know entails many risks, but it should also force a proper debate with facts and arguments thus going beyond the mere exchange of prejudices and stereotypes. It may also help to bring out, if I may say so, the closet, all those who believe that the UK is an essential part of Europe and has a vital interest in the European project without necessarily sharing the vision of the Illuminati. Number three, the Euro has become a make or break issue for European integration. Returning to national currencies would certainly not be a smooth operation. We know that adjustment would be painful for all countries in terms of both output and trade. It would be accompanied by bank failures, a large number of litigations across borders, and the recrimination that is bound to follow. Not to mention the possibility of one or more sovereign defaults. Would the financial system be able to withstand such a shock? What would happen to the European single market? And would democratic institutions in the weaker countries be able to survive yet another fall in standards of living and the vicious circle of devaluation and inflation that would follow? Sure, we enter the territory of unknown unknowns. Yet, what we should know is that if and when we decide to undo multiple ties of close interdependence across national borders, we will be taking a huge gamble and stand to lose a great deal, especially when populism and nationalism are on the rise all over the place. Number four. Don't worry, I come to the end. Europe needs growth and jobs. If they do not come soon, the political and social tensions will become increasingly unmanageable, especially in the more vulnerable countries. Critics of the prevailing orthodoxy, to be found more in debtor countries and also on the left of center of the political spectrum, believe we need a different policy mix in Europe today in order to boost demand, especially through public investment, and thus create the conditions for growth and moderate inflation. We also need, they say, a more symmetrical adjustment between deficit and surplus countries and a bolder approach towards debt. Until we manage to restore some balance between the two sides of the political and intellectual divide in Europe today, trying to combine national reforms with a better mix of fiscal and monetary policy, European economies are likely to continue to languish and the politics will certainly not improve. As we are today, the rules of Euro governance are in collision course with economic and political reality. But what if Europe has entered a period of slow growth, a new mediocre era that Christine Lagarde managing director of the IMF, has warned us about. I fear I have no answer for that, but I would be really worried if it were to be the case. Number five, that's the last. As it stands today, Euro governance is neither effective nor legitimate. It is also a system operating on the borders of legality as set out by the existing treaties. Euro governance will therefore need more effective policy instruments, stronger economic institutions, and an executive with well-defined competencies, but democratically accountable and able to act with discretionary power. Of course, all this is not for tomorrow. Now, listening to me, I'm sure that some of you now think that I'm daydreaming. These things lie beyond the realm of the politically feasible you will say. And you could be right, judging from the mood prevailing today in many of our European capitals. 
a state of denial for some, frustration or impotence for others. The odds are against a new grand bargain for Europe. I agree. But the cost of failure may also be very high. Have we thought about it? Several years back, I wrote about European integration being like a car moving uphill. The French used to provide the driver, the Commission the map, the Germans paid for the petrol, and the British oiled the brakes. In bad times, it looked like a car without a driver, the map being replaced by GPS that went on and off. The Poles at the time insisted on taking an insurance policy with God. Nobody wanted to pay for the petrol. Some clearly cheated, and those inside disagreed loudly on how many more could fit into the car. The road has become much rougher and dangerous in recent years. But many people believe that we now have a driver, and she's German, although there are doubts about whether she or anybody else has a good sense of direction or the skills required for driving in such adverse conditions. Some also wonder whether the vehicle is indeed fit for purpose, while the British may seem to be getting ready to jump out. Leadership has been thrust upon Germany more by default than by design. Germany is economically bigger and stronger than its partners, and it is also more successful than most. Berlin has tried to buy time during the big crisis, while insisting on austerity and reform as the way to cure Europe's ills. Do it like we did, has been the underlying message that Germany sends to its partners in trouble. But Germany also refuses to recognize, among other things, that it would be impossible for all European countries to run large current account surpluses simultaneously, like Germany has done for years and still does. Unless, of course, the United States and China are ready to oblige, and I don't think this is very likely. Germany seems not willing to budge because of a different view of how the economy works, because it thinks or hopes that there is no imminent danger of a breakup, or simply because of lack of trust that Germany's partners would be willing or able to deliver their side of the bargain. I believe there is indeed a bargain that needs to be struck today rather than tomorrow concerning the economic policy mix, and all parties should then commit themselves to delivering their side of it. And there is another bargain that will need to be struck further down the road concerning the reform of Euro governance and the reform of the European project in general. The initiative for both of those bargains, I believe, can only come from the strong, not from the weak. If and when it does, I'm not sure, Europe, the European, a new European bargain will then require a broad coalition of countries and the main political families in Europe, recognizing two things. First, the value of the European project for all of us, and number two, the need to give it new shape and form in a rapidly changing world. Can we do it? The answer is, I don't know. Let me now conclude. It will not be the United States of Europe any time in the foreseeable future. That you know, I'm sure. And it will not be a European power, superpower throwing its weight around in a multipolar world. Foreign policy will most probably be one of the last things that the nation states of Europe will be willing to throw into the melting pot. What it can be however, is a Europe with a healthy economy and a common currency that has made some progress, at least, in resolving the contradiction of a currency without a state. A Europe with open borders, democratic institutions, and inclusive societies. A Europe 
confident in its diversity and proud not only of its past. This is what European integration, I believe, should be all about. I trust the game is not lost. Not yet. Thank you very much.